Let us pray together. Father, would you now speak truth into our lives, into our hearts with the transforming power of your Holy Spirit, that we might look more and more to your Son, that we might look more and more like your Son in our lives, for he is your eternal wisdom incarnate in human form. Father, we pray that you would give this to us. We ask these things in the power of your Spirit and in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Today we are going to consider wisdom, and this is really part two of a sermon on wisdom. I preached back on uh, February 14th. I wanted the two sermons to be back to back, and it just didn't work out that way. But in that sermon a few weeks ago, we looked at wisdom as a reality check. And uh, if you weren't here for that sermon, you might want to go back and, and, and listen to it. I think that'll help you make uh, better sense out of, uh, out of this sermon. Uh, if you didn't really like that sermon, you might like this one. And if you don't necessarily like this sermon, you might like that one. Uh, that's just how it is. But we need both of these sermons to gather because together they give us the two sides of wisdom as we find it in Scripture. In that sermon a few weeks ago, when we talked about wisdom as reality check, we looked at wisdom, particularly in Proverbs, and we found that wisdom is all about recognizing natures and patterns in God's creation and providence. Wisdom is about recognizing natures and patterns in God's creation, in God's providence. Wisdom recognizes the nature of things. It, it, it recognizes patterns uh, in things. So just to give you an example of this, Proverbs 14.23 says, hard work brings profit, but mere talk leads to poverty. In God's world, the book of Proverbs is saying, there is a connection between work and prosperity. There is a regular pattern. So those who work hard, that tends towards prosperity. And those who are lazy, those who are all talk but no action, they're going to fall into poverty. That's a pattern in God's world. Now, the book of Proverbs is making generalizations, and no doubt you could find exceptional cases. Somebody who has been very hardworking but has remained poor, for example. We know that's certainly the case. So Proverbs is not giving us ironclad rules, things that always happen inexorably, no matter what. Proverbs gives us patterns. Proverbs shows us there is a moral order woven into the fabric of reality. There is a general pattern of moral cause and effect. So one thing will lead to another. Wisdom is all about recognizing that pattern. Uh, that if you perform this set of actions, it's going to lead to this set of results. And so in general, Proverbs would show us the results you get are a result of the actions that you have taken. Uh, here's another one. Uh, Proverbs 15, verse 1. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Now, why does Solomon say that? Why is this a proverb? Well, it's because he knows something about human nature. Again, there are certainly exceptional cases. A soft answer does not always diffuse an escalating situation. A, a gentle answer will not always quench someone else's wrath. But in general, because of how humans are, the way we work, the way we operate, the way our relationships work, Solomon can say this as a generalization. It's a reflection on the nature of things. Wisdom recognizes the natures of things. Wisdom recognizes the nature of people. 
Wisdom sees the creational blueprint, God's creational design. Wisdom in Proverbs especially is insight into the way the world works. But that does not mean that the wise man can fully understand and grasp reality. Reality remains opaque even to the wisest of men. Indeed, in a fallen world, not everything can be fixed. Not every problem can be solved. As Solomon says here in chapter 1 of Ecclesiastes, what is crooked cannot be made straight. In a fallen world, there are some things you just can't fix. And while the book of Proverbs says the hardworking man will gain a profit, Ecclesiastes chapter 1 says, what profit does a man have from all his labor? It seems like when we move from Proverbs to Ecclesiastes, we have stepped into a different world. A world that seems much more chaotic and confusing and complex than the one we find in the book of Proverbs. And that's really why we need both. We need what Proverbs shows us about wisdom, that there is a a nature to things, that there are patterns in God's world. But we also need Ecclesiastes, which shows us the complexity of things. Ecclesiastes complements Proverbs. And Ecclesiastes shows us the limits of wisdom. Even the wise cannot see all ends. As a wise man once put it, a wizard. Uh, In wisdom, we may recognize certain natures and patterns built into creation. But even then, even the wisest among us will be baffled and confused by all kinds of things that happen in the world. Even the wisest will find mysteries he cannot solve, riddles he cannot unravel, problems he cannot fix, questions he cannot answer. Now the word that Proverbs, I'm sorry, the word that Ecclesiastes uses to describe this enigmatic quality of life, this mysterious quality of life, the word Ecclesiastes uses to describe this is that word vapor. You might notice as Greg read this morning, that's the word that he used in Ecclesiastes 1. Solomon opens the book, vapor, vapor, all is vapor. Some translations render it differently in the book of Ecclesiastes, but interestingly, almost everywhere else that that word shows up in the Hebrew Bible, that word ebel in the Hebrew is translated as vapor or as mist. So what does Solomon mean when he says all is vapor? He means we can no more grasp and control life than we can grasp and control vapor. Go outside on a foggy morning and try to grab hold of the vapor. Solomon says that's what life is like. You can't grab hold of that vapor. You can't grab hold of that fog, that mist. You can't grab hold of your life any more than you can grab hold of the vapor. To say all is vapor is to say that life is fleeting. It slips away from us just as the morning vapor evaporates with the rising of the sun. It means no matter how great our strength and power and yes, wisdom may be, we can no more gain leverage over the world than we can shepherd the wind. That's the other expression that Solomon uses here, striving after the wind, or I especially like the translation, shepherding the wind. We can't shepherd the wind. We can't shepherd the wind any more than we can control our lives. And this is really helpful. Sometimes we misunderstand what wisdom is. Uh, J.I. Packer in his fabulous classic book, Knowing God, if you've never read that one, uh, add it to your stack to read soon. Great book. J.I. Packer in his 
book, Knowing God, describes it this way. This is really, really helpful, I think, in understanding what's going on in Ecclesiastes. He says, if you stand at the end of a platform on York Station, this is a a train station, a huge train station. If you stand at the end of of a platform on York Station, you can watch a constant succession of engine and train movements. But you will only be able to form a very rough and general idea of the overall plan in terms of which all these movements are being determined. So you see trains coming and going, switching tracks, all these things happening. But you really can't tell if there's any pattern or design to it. He says, if, however, you are taken up into one of the high signal boxes, so if you're taken up into one of these signal boxes, you will see there a diagram of the entire track layout for five miles on either side of the train station. So you go up in the signal box, and now you've got this bird's eye view, and you can see the track on either side of York Station for five miles in any direction. He says it will show you exactly where every train is, and you can see the whole situation through the eyes of those who control it. Now Packer goes on, he says, the mistake that is commonly made is to suppose that this is an illustration of what God does when he bestows wisdom. To suppose, in other words, that the gift of wisdom consists in a deepened insight into the providential meaning and purpose of events going on around us, an ability to see why God has done what he has done in a particular case and what he is going to do next. People feel that if they were really walking close to God so that he can impart wisdom to them freely, then they would, so to speak, find themselves in the signal box. They would discern the real purpose of everything that happened to them, and it would be clear to them every moment how God was making all things work together for good. I think Packer's right. I think that is how we sometimes think of wisdom, that wisdom gives you a a God's eye view on events, a, a signal box view of the train layout with all the tracks and the engines and all their various movements. And the reality is that Ecclesiastes is showing us that's not what wisdom is. Wisdom does not mean you can understand everything God is doing. Wisdom does not mean you understand everything God is doing in your life or in the world. Wisdom does not make reality transparent. It does not give you that bird's eye view of all the trains. It doesn't put you in the signal box. And again, that really is the point of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is the ultimate red pill. It forces us to face reality, to face reality squarely, to face aspects of reality that make us rather uncomfortable. Uh, J.I. Packer in his book goes on to say, Ecclesiastes is expressly designed to turn us into realists, to get us out of our fantasy worlds and force us to face the world as it really is. Packer summarizes it this way. He says, to live wisely, you have to be clear-sighted and realistic, ruthlessly so, in looking at life as it is. I talked about this last time when we were looking at wisdom in Proverbs a few weeks ago, how in our therapeutic age, where we want everything bubble-wrapped, we don't want any truths with hard edges where that might offend, this is the last thing people want to hear. What do you do when the truth is offensive? Well, Solomon speaks the truth anyway, and we must do the same. 
Ecclesiastes is written as a follow-up to Proverbs to keep us from getting the wrong idea about how wisdom works and what it does. Ecclesiastes is written largely in part so we do not fall into the York signal box error of thinking wisdom means we've now got this divine insight into what's going on in the world, this God's eye point of view into what's happening and what's going to happen next. Ecclesiastes reminds us we are always surrounded by a thick vapor. And indeed, our very lives are vapor. We are always shrouded in a thick mist, so you can hardly see two feet in front of you, much less five miles down the tracks. While wisdom does recognize certain patterns in the world, wisdom does not give us control over the world. Wisdom does not eliminate mystery. We can no more control our lives or the outcomes of our lives than we can shepherd the wind. Again, as Solomon says in verse 17. And this is why Solomon insists on the limitations of wisdom throughout this book. Yes, wisdom is valuable, as Proverbs says. But that doesn't mean wisdom gives you complete control over things. There are limits to our creaturely wisdom. This is why Solomon insists that wisdom cannot come from book learning alone. In chapter 12, towards the very end, he says, Of the making of many books, there is no end, and much study wearies the flesh. You can run yourself ragged, studying, reading books, writing books, trying to accumulate as much knowledge as you can, but that's not going to automatically give you this kind of insight into reality. Books can bring knowledge, but wisdom is something more than knowledge. It's deeper than knowledge. Walker Percy said this well. He said, you can make straight A's and still flunk life. You can have a high IQ and still lack wisdom. The way Dostoevsky put it, he said, it takes something more than intelligence to act intelligently. See, if the world is vaporous, what does it mean to act in wisdom? Ecclesiastes gives us a different perspective on wisdom from the book of Proverbs. They don't contradict one another. Ecclesiastes doesn't contradict Proverbs. In fact, Proverbs hints at this in many ways. Proverbs hints at the complexities that are then unfolded more fully in the book of Ecclesiastes. Proverbs reminds us that the Lord orchestrates history in a pattern way. There is a moral cause and effect order to human life. But Ecclesiastes reminds us that that moral order is always in the hands of a sovereign and free God, an inscrutable and incomprehensible God whose ways are past finding out. If God is truly the sovereign, transcendent ruler over creation, we should not expect to be able to understand all he's doing. If we think of our wisdom as being able to fully grasp God's purposes and comprehend what he's doing in the world, then we have made our own wisdom the measure of who God is, and that cannot be. If we are mere creatures and not gods, we should expect life to be a vapor. We should expect life to be full of mysteries and unanswered questions. And to see the reality of Ecclesiastes, to see what Solomon is describing here, all you have to do is look at the world around you. So often, crazy people seem to be in charge. So often, it seems crazy people are in charge of things. So often, we see the righteous suffering and the wicked prospering. Contrary to what Proverbs, read simplistically, might lead us to expect. Good people get sick. Good people get cancer. Evil often seems to run rampant. The world often looks like a chaotic mess, and it's no wonder some people conclude life is pointless. 
and become cynical. Is there really any rhyme or reason to anything? So Proverbs tells us the hardworking man will prosper. The hardworking man, his labors will profit him. But Ecclesiastes reminds us that your success, what is it going to do for you? It's going to make you the object of envy. And there are always going to be people trying to tear you down the moment you're more successful than they are. And more than that, whatever prosperity you attain, you can't take it with you when you die, and you will die. The wise man will die just like the fool. Ecclesiastes reminds us of that. And Ecclesiastes reminds us, whoever inherits your your wealth or your business might be a fool who wrecks all you worked so hard to build. And so you might wonder, well, then what's the point? What's the point? Ecclesiastes shows us a God who often hides himself who hides himself in hard-to-understand providences, where things in this world don't seem to go according to any logic that we can discern. Solomon is telling us in Ecclesiastes, face reality for what it is. Face the facts. You have to see life as it really is. So what then does it mean to be wise according to the book of Ecclesiastes? If wisdom in Proverbs is recognizing the natures and patterns of the world God made, wisdom in Ecclesiastes is recognizing the limitations of wisdom. Wisdom in Ecclesiastes is recognizing that the world and everything in it has a certain unpredictable quality to it, that it is an uncontrollable vapor. Yes, wisdom is recognizing God has built the world in such a way that there are certain natures and patterns in the world we've got to recognize. But wisdom also means recognizing that this world is always elusive. It's never under our control. We never get any leverage over it. In other words, wisdom, according to the book of Ecclesiastes, is recognizing God has built the world in such a way that we must live by faith. We must live by faith. All we can do in the end is cling to God. Because Ecclesiastes shows us this world is never going to be under our control. And if we can't control it, we better trust the one who can and who does control it. That's the message of Ecclesiastes in a nutshell. How does one live wisely in the face of the vapor? The vaporish nature of reality. How do we live wisely in a vaporous world? Again, if wisdom in Proverbs is the art of recognizing natures and patterns, wisdom in Ecclesiastes is the art of faithful improvisation. Wisdom in the book of Ecclesiastes is the art or the skill of faithfully improvising. Let me explain what I mean by that. Think about uh, Solomon's career as king. How does it begin? Well, in 1 Kings chapter 3, uh, after Solomon comes to the throne, God says, ask of me and I will give it to you. And so Solomon wisely asks for wisdom. He knows God has made him king. He knows God's will for his life, that God wants him to rule well. And he knows he's going to need wisdom in order to rule in this way. If he wants to govern well, he's going to need wisdom. He's got the law, but he already knows that as king, he's going to encounter situations that the law does not fully or thoroughly address. And so he needs something beyond the law. He needs wisdom. 
So he wisely asks for wisdom. God grants him wisdom so he can rule the people in the way God desires him to do so. Well, then further on in that chapter, 1 Kings 3, what is the first thing, the first situation Solomon faces as king? There's a case brought before him. There are two women, two mothers and one baby. Two mothers fighting over one baby. One woman accidentally killed her baby in the night, so she took her baby and and, and switched babies uh, with this other woman, and that leads to a dispute between them, and this case is brought before Solomon. How will he resolve the case? How would you judge in this situation? What would you do? How would you settle this case? (laughs) Parents often run into something kind of like this, right? Two kids squabbling over something. How do you sort it out? Two women, one baby, what do you do? Can Solomon go to the law? Can he go to Exodus or Leviticus to solve this? Is there any case law that says, all right, if you got two women fighting over one baby, this is how you resolve it. Moses didn't give a law that addresses that situation. So what does Solomon have to do? He has to improvise. Solomon has to wing it. He has to faithfully improvise. The law doesn't answer this question, so wisdom will have to. Solomon will have to take what he knows of the law of God. He'll have to take what he knows of human nature, specifically maternal nature in this case, and then devise a clever solution on his own. And so that's what he does. He says, cut the baby in half. Now, Solomon had no intention of actually cutting that baby in half, but he knows if he says, cut the baby in half, the real mother, the true mother will reveal herself. And that is exactly what happened. But the story shows us, the story reminds us, there's not a law or a rule for every situation we face in life. Life is often messy. We are often required to make decisions in which The decisions are not about black and white moral issues. They're about decisions that are not directly moral. Rather, they have to do with how we live our lives in the face of all kinds of complexity. The vaporous nature of life means we do not have control over our lives. We cannot shepherd the wind. We're going to face complex situations that do not have easy answers. So what do we do in these cases when faced with these kinds of decisions? We have to improvise. That's what wisdom is in the book of Ecclesiastes, the art of faithful improvisation. Wisdom is the art of winging it well. Because the reality is there are times when all of us have to wing our way through life. See, the law of God addresses itself to You could say the big picture of life. It gives us black and white ethical categories. It tells us right from wrong in a broad kind of way. The law is a light to our path and a lamp to our feet. And you never have to wonder, is it it God's will for me to steal? Is it God's word for me to commit idolatry? The law answers those kinds of questions. You don't have to wonder what God's will is. You don't have to seek out God's will for those kinds of questions, God has told you directly in his word how you're to live in these areas. The law makes a lot of our decisions very clear cut. There is right and there is wrong. And so the law gives us this moral framework for life. But what we find, especially as we get older, especially as we find ourselves in leadership positions, We face situations and decisions for which there is no law. 
And this is where wisdom comes in for us, just as it is where wisdom came in for Solomon. And when faced with these kinds of situations, what do we do? Building on the principles the law has given to us that we have hopefully internalized, we wing it faithfully. We improvise faithfully. When faced with situations the law does not directly address, what do we do? We improvise as faithfully as we can. Take a question like this, very, very, very simple question, but one that virtually everybody faces at some point. Who do you marry? Is this person a good person for you to marry? The law does help some with that question. The law provides a framework within which we answer that question. Okay, the law tells you that you should uh, only marry a believer of the opposite sex. Uh, the law tells you you should marry only in the Lord. Okay, but that still that leaves a lot of candidates. Okay, you still have to make a decision whether or not this is a good match, whether or not this is a good person for you to marry. And the law is not going to answer that question. There was no law given to me that said, "Thou shalt marry Jenny." That's a wisdom question. It's a, it's a matter of wisdom. Wisdom is faithfully improvising when we face a decision not directly addressed by the law of God. N.T. Wright provides a helpful illustration that I think gets at how this works. He says, imagine a long lost Shakespeare play that has been discovered. So one of the, the, the plays of Shakespeare has been lost. It's now rediscovered. It's a five act play but only four of the acts have survived. But the four acts that we have are so good. They tell such an amazing story. It is determined to put the play on anyway. And so they go out and they find the very best Shakespearean actors and actresses, and, and they're gonna act out the first four acts of the play. And then, these Shakespearean actors and actresses having completely internalized their role, their lines, their script for those first four acts, then those actors and actresses will work out the lost, unwritten fifth act for themselves by improvising. That's what great actors and actresses learn to do after a while. They actually can, can improvise within a story. They will have so immersed themselves in Shakespeare's work and Shakespeare's culture and in the first four acts of that play that when it comes time to improvise the fifth act, they can do so in a way that fits, that fits with the rest of the story. They're going to wing it, yes, they're going to improvise, but they're going to wing it in a way that brings the play to a fitting and suitable conclusion, that is a faithful application of what's there written in the first four acts. They don't have a script for the fifth act, but they just intuitively come to know the way the story should go, and so they're able to play their parts accordingly. In a way, that's the position we find ourselves in. The first four acts are a written authority God has given to us, his word, his law. Okay, that, the, the first four acts of that Shakespearean play are kind of a law for the actors and actresses. 
And, and once they have immersed themselves in it, when they encounter a part of the story for which they do not have a written script, they can faithfully improvise. And that's how it should be with us. We should so immerse ourselves in and internalize the written word of God that when we encounter a situation for which there is no written law, no written script to follow, we can faithfully improvise and fill the story out. We know the way the story's going. We know the role God's called us to play. We know enough about the way the story goes and the law God has given to us that we can fill in those places where there is no law that directly addresses the situation we find ourselves in. And we do find ourselves in these situations. Again, the Bible does not answer every question we face on a day-to-day basis. But if we are immersed in this story of Scripture, if we have internalized its laws and put them into practice, then... When we face a fork in the road for which there is no biblical command, you will be able to wing it faithfully. And your improvisations will be faithful applications and extensions of Scripture. Think about how much of life works this way, how much of life requires the art of faithful improvisation. Let me give you a few more illustrations of this. This is certainly true in sports. You think about the great athletes or, or, or great teams. One thing that makes them great is the ability to improvise. These great athletes, these great teams have so internalized the principles of the game. They've so internalized the plays their coach wants them to run that then when they encounter something new on the court or on the field, they can improvise. Think about it. A team will practice a play over and over and over again. Yeah, they do that in practice. Then it comes game time, and they're now in a live action situation. And suddenly the defense throws them a different look than anything they saw in practice. You know, the defense lines up in an unexpected way. They're, they're going to send a blitz that the quarterback's never seen before. What do the great ones do? The great ones can improvise on the spot. That's what makes them great. You know, the Larry Birds, the Michael Jordans, why were they so great at basketball? Why were they so great on the basketball court? It's because they were masters of improvisation. Yeah, they knew the playbook. They knew the script. They knew the plays the coach wanted them to run. They had practiced them. They had internalized them. But then when they encountered something, which you always do on the basketball court, something that hasn't happened before, that you haven't seen in practice, what could they do? They could faithfully improvise. Whenever the play broke down, they were able to improvise a play, maybe even a, you know, a, a better play than what the coach would have called in that particular kind of case. Or take something as simple as learning to drive. You know, learning to drive works this way. What happens when you learn to drive? You learn the basic rules of driving, how the car works, the rules of the road, so to speak. You internalize those rules. So operating the car and driving according to those rules starts to become second nature. But then, you know, any 16-year-old, they, they all swap these stories. The first time you get out on the road and you encounter something you have not seen before. Something you never saw when mom or dad or your driver's ed instructor was in the car with you. You encounter something you haven't seen before, something they didn't cover in the driver's ed textbook. And so what do you have to do? You have to faithfully improvise in order to avoid a wreck. One of my favorite examples of this is the story of Sully. You probably know this story. January 2009, U.S. Airways Flight 1549 takes off from LaGuardia in New York City. 
Captain Charles Sullenberger, known as Sully, had done all his usual checks before takeoff. But two minutes into the flight, something terrible happened. The plane ran into a massive flock of Canadian geese. And both engines were damaged and began to lose power. Problem is, the plane was headed for the Bronx, which is one of the most densely populated areas in the city. And so Sully, the captain, the pilot, had several decisions to make almost instantaneously to save the lives not only of those on board the plane, but those on the ground as well. And while in flight school, in flight training, they tried to prepare pilots for every eventuality, everything that could possibly happen, nothing could quite have prepared a pilot for this. What would Sully have to do? He would have to improvise. He knew he couldn't make it to another airport, another nearby airport. He knew they couldn't land on the interstate. That'd be too dangerous, too risky. The only option was the Hudson River. The only option was a water landing. The problem with landing on water, landing a a plane, especially a plane of that size on water, is it's so dangerous. One mistake and all is lost. You tip a wing or the nose of the airplane and it's disaster. So what did Sully and his co-pilot have to do? They had to get the engines just right. They had to get the angle just right. They had to get the speed just right. They had to get the electronics just right. And you know how the story goes. Sully did it. Everyone survived the emergency landing. And some people call it a miracle. I think it'd be better to call it an act of wisdom. It was the pilot's wisdom that saved the day. Sully was so in tune with his aircraft. He was so immersed in the right habits of flying. Those right habits were so ingrained in him. He had so much experience of doing things the right way, the the normal way, according to the book, that when he encountered a situation not described in any of the flying textbooks, he could improvise his way to a safe landing. By mastering the ordinary, you could say, he could improvise skillfully when faced with the extraordinary. And that's how wisdom works in the book of Ecclesiastes. You might say, if ever there was a pilot surrounded by vapor, uh, in a way, it was Sully. How did he land the plane through the vapor? He improvised skillfully. Now think about how many areas of your life, you know, I don't know that any of you are pilots, but think about how many areas of your life require you to wisely and skillfully improvise. Okay, parents, think about the task of parenting, of mothering and fathering. One thing that's always been interesting to me is how the Bible has so so little in terms of specific instructions for parents. There's so little in the Bible that bears directly upon parenting. Oh, sure, we're given promises as parents, and we know we have to trust those promises. I'll be a God to you and to your children. And we know from passages like Deuteronomy 6, we're to teach our children God's word at all times. We know from the book of Proverbs, we're to discipline them, and Proverbs even speaks of using the rod to do so. But there are still a lot of blanks that need to be filled in. So let's just say you're going to apply the book of Proverbs and you're going to use the rod on your child when your child sins. Well, how do you use the rod? How many swats do you give for talking back or for lying? And what if a certain number of swats seems effective to bring one kid to repentance, but not another one of your kids? What do you do? 
You have to improvise. Do you discipline differently when the kids have been kept up late or didn't get to have dinner the night before? Do you discipline differently in the grocery store than you would at home? And if you say yes, do you have a chapter and verse for that? I mean, it'd be nice if Scripture answered all of these parenting questions for us. It'd be nice if, if, if we had a whole book of the Bible devoted to answering every question that a parent could possibly have, although I think that would make the Bible probably unusably large. But God hasn't done that for us. So what do parents have to do? Parents have to wing it. <laughs> and I know that's how a lot of you parents feel, like you're winging what is parenting? Parenting is the art or skill of faithfully improvising, often in the face of very complex situations. Should you give your kids an allowance or not? When should your kids get a phone? And what about social media? What about dating and courtship? The Bible does not spell out all the details of these kinds of complicated questions parents are going to face. Sure, there, there, there's the law, there's a big picture framework there, and you certainly are going to be teaching your kids the Ten Commandments and everything that goes with them, and you're going to parent in terms of those Ten Commandments, but so many of the questions you face are not going to be answered by the Ten Commandments. They're going to be a matter of wisdom, of faithfully and skillfully improvising. See, the problem, and I, I think this is really what Packer is getting at with his illustration of what wisdom is not. The problem is real wisdom requires a great deal from us. And so what we so often do is we look for substitutes. Rather than seeking to grow in wisdom so we can become that faithful improviser, that, that, so we can get more skilled at winging it when we have to, we look for substitutes. We look for shortcuts. So I don't want to go this hard path of wisdom. I want something that's going to make it easier and more clear cut for me. And so I'll give you some examples of these kinds of substitutes people look to. There are some people who go the God told me route. And they want God to speak directly to them every time they face a decision like this. But God doesn't do that. And if God did do that, it would mean you'd never get to grow up. You know, we might wish God gave us a GPS system to tell us every turn to take every time we come to a fork in the road. But if we did that, we would never learn to really drive on our own. If we go the God told me route, if we take that approach, well, one thing you're doing actually is you're deifying your own internal voice because God doesn't speak that way. God speaks here in his word outside of you. That voice inside of you is your own voice. And your voice might be worth listening to or it might not be depending on the kind of person you are, but that's your own voice. It's not God's voice. Don't deify that internal voice. God's not giving new revelation today. But this view is also wrong because God wants you to grow up. He wants you to be able to make mature decisions for yourself. God is not a helicopter parent. God's not constantly smothering you, telling you, you know, whispering in your ear every single time you're faced with a decision what he wants you to do. Because God wants you to grow up. He wants you to become a responsible, mature person. That's what God wants from us. Another wisdom substitute is legalism. There are people who say, well, God hasn't given us rules in this area of life, in his word. So we'll just make some rules up and then impose them on everyone else. This was the approach the Pharisees took. God's law is not enough. We're going to add to it these man-made laws and we're going to impose them on people as if they were God's law. They'll be just as binding. 
What drives the legalist is this desire to take all the guesswork out of decision-making. There are still others who will try to create a formula of some sort, and, and they want to have a formula for everything. And sometimes these formulas might work well, but a lot of times they're going to end up oversimplifying the problems we actually face. We simply don't have a formula for every set of issues we're going to encounter. But I've seen Christians come up with 10 steps to caring for your baby God's way, or seven steps for the perfect courtship. Okay, that one always seems to backfire, <laughs> especially that one. Okay? They're substituting formulas for wisdom. And there may be a lot of insight in those formulas. They may say many things that are true, but the reality is life is always messier and more complex and more vaporish than our formulas will allow for. And so oftentimes, seeking to use a formula, especially in some kind of rigid way, is going to result in disaster. Now, you might say, well, improvising, that sounds kind of scary because I'm going to make a lot of mistakes if I have to improvise. And I would say, yes, you are going to make mistakes in these areas of life where you have to improvise. Okay, if you make a mistake in a law area, we call that a sin. Okay? Mistakes in these areas can still have all kinds of terrible consequences, but it's not the same as breaking God's law. But here's the thing. If you, if you, if you look back on your life and you, 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 know, you don't wish you had done anything differently, then the reality, all you can say to that is you haven't grown in wisdom at all. You've made mistakes. You just can't identify them. And because you can't identify them, you can't learn from them. George Orwell once said autobiography, that is when people tell their own story, rather written or, or, or verbally, autobiography is only to be trusted when it reveals something disgraceful. A man who gives a good account of himself is probably lying since, since any life, when viewed from the inside, is simply a series of defeats. I think there is a lot of truth in that. Any life looked at from the inside is going to feel like a series of mistakes or defeats. Life is often going to feel like a, a series of blunders. But here's the thing. You will make fewer mistakes in those areas of life that require you to improvise if you are keeping the commands God has clearly revealed. For those areas of life where God has given us the script, where he has given us the law, follow that script, obey those laws. Then when you encounter those areas where you have to improvise, you will be able to do so skillfully. And that is why at the end of the book of Ecclesiastes, after describing the vaporish nature of life in all these different areas, in all these different ways, what, is, what does Solomon come back to? In Ecclesiastes 12, Solomon says... This is the sum of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. Solomon, who knew the law, who knew the commandments would not be enough to govern the people the way he needed to, and therefore who asked for wisdom, circles back around in the end to the commandments, to the law. Fear God and keep his commandments. The wisdom you need for those questions where there is no divinely revealed answer will arise from your obedience to what has been revealed. Think about the parable of the talents taught by Jesus in Matthew 25. 
Jesus gives us talents. And he makes it clear in that parable, he wants us to invest those talents so he will get a return. But he doesn't tell us how to invest them. He doesn't give the talents and say, this is how I want you to invest it. He just gives us the talents. And so you've got to make decisions about how to invest your talents, how to invest your time, your money, your skills, your gifts. You've got to make decisions about talent investment every day. And you know what? All investors, again, any honest investor will tell you, sometimes he's going to make a bad investment. Sometimes he's going to make a bad investment. At some point along the way, that's going to happen. But you know what a good investor will do? As soon as he realizes he's made a bad investment, he's going to fix it. He's going to correct it. As soon as it becomes apparent this was a bad investment, he's going to do what he needs to do to get back on track. And I will tell you, and I'll close with this, I think understanding this is incredibly free. In one sense, this may sound kind of scary, kind of burdensome. You mean there are areas of life where I've just got to wing it, where I've got to improvise? Well, yes. And whether you realize it or not, that's what you've been doing in a lot of life. But don't make life any harder than it has to be. Don't make life any harder than it has to be. Remember, it is not a sin to be finite. It's not a sin to not know everything. It's not a sin to say, I don't know. It's not a sin to realize that you will never be on top of everything. You'll never have enough time to do everything that you feel like needs to be done. Vapor, vapor, all is vapor. I hear a lot of people saying today, oh, we live in such uncertain times as if there was something unique about living in 2021. There's nothing unique about living in 2021. The reality is the future is always uncertain. It's always vaporous. And Ecclesiastes reminds us there is nothing we can ever do to get leverage over the future. You cannot control your own future. I think so much of our suffering and anxiety in life comes from attempting to control what cannot be controlled. You cannot control what other people do. You cannot control the future. You cannot control the circumstances of your life. Ecclesiastes tells us, face up to the vaporous nature of the world. The pain of facing that reality and it is painful, but the pain of facing that reality is nothing compared to the suffering that comes from ignoring it. Because in facing up to the vaporous nature of reality, there's actually great joy. In fact, this is one of the most interesting things about the book of Ecclesiastes. You keep thinking, well, if all of this is true, isn't Solomon going to bring some kind of really negative, pessimistic, cynical, hopeless, despairing conclusion to it all? And he does just the opposite. He keeps coming back again and again in the book to this joyful refrain. And so in chapter 2, he puts it this way. He says, there's nothing better. You know, in light of all the vaporous nature of reality he's just described, there's nothing better than that a man should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his work. Chapter 9, he says, puts it this way, he says, Go eat your bread with joy, drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved of your works. Enjoy life with the wife of your youth. And we might think, Solomon, how can you say this? We might want to ask Solomon, how can you tell us to eat and drink and enjoy work and wife when all of our days are vaporous? How can we enjoy these things when life is so vaporous? 
The vaporous nature of life doesn't lead Solomon to say, abandon your calling, abandon your responsibilities, abandon the kingdom, abandon your family. It's all pointless. No, just the opposite. Solomon tells us to pursue wisdom even though wisdom has limitations. And Solomon will not let us become cynical. What does the vaporous nature of reality do? In the book of Ecclesiastes, it doesn't lead us to despair. It leads us to trust God, to walk by faith, to receive God's gifts with a grateful heart. Because when you recognize this really is vapor, this world really is vapor, my life really is vapor, you realize, you know what? I can live with unanswered questions. When you live by faith, you can live with unanswered questions. When you live by faith, you can live without having control over the future. When you live by faith, you can endure mystery. When you live by faith, you can live with joy even as you face the harsh realities of life. Because you realize God's design is for our joy, but we can only taste that joy, we can only experience that joy if we entrust ourselves to him. Solomon shows us you were created to enjoy life. You were created to enjoy God's gifts, to eat, drink, and be merry. But the only way to do so, the only way to get that joy is if you are trusting and thanking God. Otherwise, the vapor will constantly overwhelm your joy and steal it away. Ecclesiastes, maybe more directly than any other book in all of Scripture, shows us what it means to live by faith in all of life, what it means to entrust ourselves to God. You know, as much as we might like to have a roadmap that would tell us exactly what to do at every turn in life, how to make every decision we encounter, as much as we would like for our wisdom to give us control, as much as we would like for our wisdom to give us that bird's eye view from the control tower, from the signal box. The reality is none of those things will happen. Even the wisest of men realize the limits of their wisdom. Indeed, the essence of wisdom in one sense is recognizing the limits of your wisdom. All we can do at the end of each day and throughout each day is entrust ourselves to this God. This God who loves us, who forgives us, who is with us, even when he seems absent, he is very much present. You can't shape the vapor. You can't sculpt it to suit yourself. You can't shepherd the wind. So what do you do? You can't shepherd the wind, but the good shepherd can. And so you entrust yourself to him. You can't control the vapor. But he does. He is our creator, our savior, our hope, our joy, our peace. And that's what wisdom looks like in the book of Ecclesiastes, embracing this God and clinging to him. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen.